Yes, we're still in lockdown here in South Africa, thanks to the global CV-19 pandemic. And while that's created all kind of feels, moods, dangers, and concerns, it's also pushed all kind of creativity. It's offered time for me to get to know TikTok and to find some pretty humorous favorites like this one. My initiation to TikTok, thanks to my teen daughters teasing me about making banana bread again and again. With original sound by Michaela did. Girl, don't do it. It's not worth it. I'm not going to do it, girl. I was just thinking about it. I'm not going to do it. I did it. You're listening to Be There, Do That, the podcast featuring everyday stories about food, race, and social impact in Africa. I laughed so hard, I just had to share it with my friend, restaurateur, and cookbook author, Portia Mbao. Hey, Portia, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm just, uh, you know, getting bored with staring at screens. And um, what I really just, I've been so, you know, there's all kinds of uh, banana bread baking crazes going on online these days. Um, And I just thought somehow that just doesn't feel quite as uh, accessibly African as I would like it to be. So let me give myself a challenge and try to make plantain bread. Ah. And I had never done that before, and I was very nervous, but I did it. And just like that funny meme uh, that I sent to you, which I just think is hilarious. Yes, yes. I did it again and again, and I did it again. Uh. <laughs> and I loved it. So, yeah, so I thought, ah, let me see if Portia has a fantastic plantain recipe. You may remember Portia from an earlier episode. She's the owner of the Africa Cafe here in Cape Town. And like most other restaurateurs, Portia has had to come to complete closure over this period. But lucky for her, Portia and daughter Lumai had recently launched their first cookbook, the Africa Cookbook. It's been on a publicity tour with them, and they managed to continue while in lockdown. As well, they've been focusing on their upcoming new book. Yeah, actually, I, take, I decided to take some time off staring at screens because I've been doing that a lot as well. And I thought, oh, today is such a beautiful day outside. I'm just sitting outside in the lawn. Okay, well, then I won't ask you to stare at your screen. But <laughs> I do want to talk to you about plantains. Now, just in case you aren't familiar with plantains, they're like bananas. They're starchy and sweeter. They can be cooked for savory and sweet dishes, but bigger and green and yellow and black, but still white inside. And for some, this is where the contention sits. It seems while bananas are eaten around the world by everyone, plantains are held out as uniquely of interest to black and brown people. Hmm. I wondered if that was true while trying hard to find a source to buy from here in South Africa. Turns out, Portia doesn't have a recipe for plantains in her book, The Africa Cookbook. I I love plantain, but you know, uh, I don't have a plantain recipe in my book right now. I have had them in, um, like in chips form, like people usually fry them as a little snack. I've also had them as like just a, a little vegetable, kind of like fried, and then they become quite sticky. Mm-hmm. 
So that put us both on a wild chase to find a source and a recipe and to get to the bottom line. Are bananas for whites and plantains for black people? Turns out, plantains originated in Malaysia in about 500 AD and then were introduced to the world by Indian traders, in fact, not Africans, nor Caribbean islanders, which is what I'd always thought before now. They arrived in the Bantu Kingdom of Central and Southern Africa around 1500 AD. Chef Coco is the owner and chef at Epicure in Johannesburg, a fine dining take on continental African flavors, ingredients, and foods. Epicure is the it restaurant. If you want it, have it, and you want to be close to it, you go to Epicure. As a biracial product of two continents and a Pan-African, I figured he'd definitely have access to plantains. So I'm from Belgium and Burundi. So I was born in Burundi and I left Burundi at the age of 14 to go to boarding school in Belgium. And then I left Belgium to go to Congo to take over my restaurant mother upon her death. And uh, after uh, Congo, I went to Ivory Coast. I lived anywhere longer or as long as in South Africa. Ah, huh, that's like me. So I've been in South Africa for 21 years and I've not lived in any place longer than that. So what do you think it is about this place that, that attracts us and keeps us here as immigrants? Uh, well, for me, it's, I think, the, the opportunity and definitely the, the development that uh, South Africa has reached is something that most African country have to, to see as a, as a model or as a target. What I do here at Epicure, it, it's really, I want to show that uh, African food can be fine dining. You know, we can eat uh, African food in a very upmarket place, in a very, how can I say, like, like a high-end food. Uh, as African, we also have a, a refined palate and taste. So that's what I wanted to show, which is how to now make African food look modern so we don't stay with our, our old vision of the food uh, of uh, Africa. That's why I'm trying to do a uh, uh, Some of African people think that uh, uh, the traditional way of eat, eating African food uh, should not change, the way we plate it, it should not change. I say, well, okay, that's your point of view. My point of view is that I need to, to make African food evolve uh, with the world because at the end of the day the, the thing is whether we like it or not we first eat with our eyes 
I think it's really interesting what you say, this idea of we eat first with our eyes. And then when we put that into a context of understanding how people accept what is good for you, what is healthy, what is nutritious, what has social value, uh, the presentation does say a lot. So from your background, the idea of the blend of all of those cultures, the, the traditional European out of the Belgian, the traditional African out of the Burundian, are you, are you actually just sort of putting a European presentation on top of African traditional food? No, I mean, every, every culture has his own food genre. You cannot tell me that you think that a, a black person will eat the same as an Indian or, or a Kalak or, or, or a white people. No, that's, that's, that's never happened anywhere in the world. Hmm. So what is it that makes something a black person's food, a white person's food, a colored person's food? What is that? There is nothing, I mean, in my view, there is nothing wrong to think that uh, uh, each race has uh, its own food genre. I don't see anything wrong about that. Well, maybe mainly it would be his or her origin, uh, where is she coming from? Is she coming from the north of South Africa, then where... Eat more something maybe with more greens, more uh, nuts, and something like that. If somebody's more coastal, or uh, whether it will be in Durban, it will be very meat based diet. If it's maybe around Cape Town, it's more uh, fish or seafood based dishes. I think what becomes wrong with that is that if I am determined to be a person of a particular race uh, and that this food is not for me... How can you be determined to be a person of a particular race? You, you either are or you are not. Well, if you're looking at the landscape of South Africa from the historical perspective, somebody else determined what I am, right? And then they told me, because of that, you need to live over here. And then they told me, and be educated like this. And then they told me, those foods are available for you. And so now, consequently, in South Africa, we have an extraordinary amount of people suffering from uh, malnutrition, uh, obesity, diabetes, because still, on an institutional level, somebody has decided... Black people eat this, white people eat that. So I'm saying, did you, did I, did we put our hands up saying, yeah, you know what? I'm the one who wants to eat only mealies. I'm the one who wants corn flour, corn meal, corn porridge, just give it all to me in the highest sugar that you could possibly find, genetically modified. Uh, and then that's now black people's food, pop. So I wondered again, how a biracial European African, literally at the top of the food chain, saw himself in this picture as it relates to food. I mean, surely, if anyone would have a more flexible opinion about this issue, it would be Chef Coco, yeah? Like for me, I will find something which is more Belgian, I'll bring in something which is more from Burundi, and I can make a mix, and that's who I am. That, that's how... That's how I see the evolution of, uh, of uh, any food genre. 
That got me thinking about my yellow bananas begging to be made into banana bread. Was I somehow betraying my people? Shouldn't I be eating plantain bread? I had to find some plantains. Yeah, it's because South Africa never... South African food is not plantain-based. They don't eat plantain. Therefore, of course, it's not normal for them to have plantain, like cassava, like yam. You, you, you don't do that. You, you go to Morocco, it's still Africa, but you can't find plantain. Plantain is not a, uh, one of the uh, natural ingredients, you know? So, uh, yeah, now that we have more and more people coming from other countries, that's how everybody starts adding uh, their own uh, their own food culture and, and having much more access to, to the ingredients. I have found it extraordinarily, shockingly difficult to find plantains. And it's like I said, 20 yeah, years. Yeah, it's something very new. I, I can tell you a story that I had a couple of years ago when I was here in Johannesburg. Uh, to find plantain was uh, really a mission. So I had made a special menu for, I think it was for the French embassy. They wanted something uh, African before I opened even uh, Epicure a long time ago. So I made a menu and then in the menu there was plantain. So I went and see my regular supplier in, uh, uh, at the Yorville market. And uh, I told her I would like to have so many plantain for uh, this day because I have a special menu explained to her. So, okay, it's fine. So, on the day that I was supposed to go and fetch my order, I arrived there. So, ah, the whole market, nobody received plantain. I'm very sorry. And I said, I mean, how can this happen? I, I need plantain for the menu, which is in three days. You know, we... Uh, I've sent the menu to the customer, to the client, the client wanted, approved that. I cannot go and tell them, oh, unfortunately, we don't have the plantain. So, unfortunately, you can put the whole market, there is no plantain, you won't get plantain. So, so, so at that time, my younger brother was still living in Belgium. So, I called him in Belgium for him to go to the market there, to the African market in Belgium, where plantain meats available on a daily basis. And then he had to, uh, to buy plantain in Belgium and send the plantain at the end of Africa. But do you, do you realize how funny that story is? I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Uh, funny. Not funny, actually. I could have just waited until my bananas got black. I'm guessing that's how many of us relieve ourselves of food-based race guilt when wanting to make a humble banana bread, especially in these times. But then I just thought, nah, if Chef Coco could find a way, surely I could too. So I'm a part of a WhatsApp chat group about food. Who isn't these days? And there, miracle upon miracles, someone posted a video with a web link titled plantains.coza. Big Mama say what? Hi, I'm wondering uh, if I've called plantains. Yes, you're calling to the right number. You're speaking to Francis. I'm calling from Cape Town. 
And I'm just trying okay. to understand a couple things about plantains. Um, okay. Because I was having a chat with a friend earlier today about them. And she was telling me she thinks they're black people food, uh, where bananas are white people food. And I had another conversation with another guy, and he said the same. I'm an African-American, and I've lived here for a long time, and I've only just recently realized that you can buy plantains in South Africa. Okay. What is the difference? Okay, the difference, the yellow is the ripe one. So, the ripe one, like sweet banana. <laughs> I guess he didn't actually hear my question, right. eh? So, and the green one, the green one get ripe after a while, meaning after like three weeks. That's on its own. It can start getting ripe. Yeah. So, uh, what exactly do you want to know? I want to make plantain bread. This gets back to my friend's conversation. Is is plantains for black people and bananas for white people? Plantain bread? Yeah. No, there is... <laughs> <laughs> they are all for human beings. There is no preferable white or black or white people are eating the plantain. Black people are eating Chinese, are eating it too much even. Indians <laughs> are eating it. Yes. I like that. I like that. So yeah. where are these where are these coming from? Not in Africa. We have many places anyway. Okay. Thanks, Francis. It's Yolanda. Appreciate it. Okay. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. So as usual, food travels with people. And if anyone knows anything about that these days, it's Sheree Robinson of Tastemakers Africa. For me, it's it's like a no-brainer. I always find it interesting that it's interesting, to be honest. I think that at the end of the day, like our story did not start in America. And any anybody will tell you that lineage and identity are core components of success. I think the other part of it is really looking at how we can use this sort of global Blackness you know, that is rooted in our being from from Africa as a tool um, to move forward, you know, in society. I think that that's the other the other piece for me is really just about both the his- history and identity component of it, but also looking in today's world, like there is a, a need, I feel, um, for us to connect across Black identity and Black identity is rooted in Africa first, in my opinion. Hmm. Okay, so I, you, you sold me, you know, you kind of sold me ahead of the game, meanwhile, behind the game, <laughs> as I'm sitting over here on the continent and you're over there in America, I think uh, we are in agreement. But just for the conversational sake, I find it really interesting to think about this idea that, you know, being an African-American, we should, first of all, have an interest in the continent. Why do you think that is? Tastemakers really started out of an interest in sort of combining something that I'd always been passionate about, which is, you know, my connection as an African-American to the continent and making it easier and really inspiring other people of African descent, particularly in the United States, to see that connection as valuable and as something that they should actually like connect to in real life and wanting to combine that with solving an actual problem, which is even when you want to connect, 
um, or even if you're based on the continent and want to explore, all of the information is very much geared towards safaris or content, but none of it really allows you to get to know people, you know, at the most human levels and get to see people, you know, with similar aspirations and ambitions of you and really explore through them. So for me, Tastemakers was about, you know, finding that nexus between passion, purpose, and problem solving. A passionately driven researcher and scientifically trained problem solver, Sheree traveled several African countries while working for the World Bank, Center for Disease Control in America, and Alicia Keys' NGO before getting the beasting of her life. I was at work. I was working at the Center for Disease Control and I was walking between offices, uh, maybe even coming from lunch now that I think about it, and a bee stung me in my arm. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, how is this so small? But the impact of it so big. Now, some may say that was an ancestral calling, but no matter, Sheree felt and saw an opportunity to make a big impact of her own and right here on the continent. You don't forget, you don't forget a beast thing. My background is in science. I'm a scientist. But my strength has always been in making complicated things accessible to everyone. So even when I was a researcher, even when I was at the World Bank, my job was always taking technical information and translating it into something other people could consume. And so when I thought about how I personally was equipped to solve this problem, I realized for me, it was about making Africa aspirational. So there's a certain type of person that's going to take and pay for a DNA test, but I wanted to make going to Africa cool and aspirational for not just the sort of well-educated, academic, international traveling Black person, but I wanted like the girl, you know, that's not even going to college, maybe twerking at the party on Friday, also (laughs) to go to Africa. Like, so for me, it was about solving the problem in a way I hadn't seen it solved before and, and creating a movement that was about really like not making Africa cool because it already is, but making that clear to everyone else and making that tangible for everyone else. That is also me. That's the other thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, I spent a lot of time on the continent and shared my experience constantly. And over and over again, people would reach out to me, whether it was on Facebook and then eventually Instagram, and they'd say, what Africa is that? And then the next question would be, and how do I do that? And so for me, it's the how do I do it problem that Tastemakers is solving, um, but with a different perspective than what we've seen in the travel industry, particularly as it relates to Africa. So tell me about Tastemakers Africa. How did that come along? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that Tastemakers is much more than an African travel company. 
but our core, that is where our, our, our core business lies at the moment. But I think our impact, I mean, I think our impact will be and already is, you know, much, much larger than that. On their website, tastemakersafrica.com, it's described, the goal is to build a world which values people equally, no matter their locality or skin color, while putting a premium on culture created by people of the diaspora, building community, fueling passion, and creating sustainable change along the way. really so excited um, about where things are trending. Um, So I think in that way, it's definitely much more than a booking platform, even though that is where our, that's how our, that's how we transact, right? But how we exist is much different because we've centered ourselves and people in connectivity. So while yes, you can go and book a tour on Tastemakers, You know, the person you're booking that tour with is usually not a traditional tour guide. They're usually an artist or a musician or some other sort of creative entrepreneur. And they're usually leaders and tastemakers, you know, where the name comes from, in their own right, in their own cities. You know, so we're tapping into people who are changing the face of the continent. Now, when you connect a traveler to that person, Fundamentally, through that interaction, their thoughts and opinion about what Africa is, you know, in the broadest sense of the word, um, changes. Because even I, you know, when I first started traveling, as much as I was curious and interested in the continent, I still had, you know, a pretty backwards view and record in retrospect about what that really meant. You know, when I went to Sierra Leone maybe four days in, I was invited to a college party. And it struck me that I'd never even considered that there were colleges in Africa. Like I hadn't thought about it that far. And most people haven't. They're like, I want to go to the motherland, you know, but haven't really thought much further than that. Yeah, I I have to agree with you. I've experienced that in a lot of different conversations and, and engagements with people um, you know, saying things as far flung as um, it's so exciting to hear that you're in South Africa. I want to go to South Africa and teach. And I think, I, you know, I hear that in a ubiquitous one country, one city, one road kind of way. <laughs> um, yeah. And just, you know, from my own experience living here for such a long time, I have learned much more being here than I ever could have thought I could teach anybody. So I think, you know, it's a really important um, approach that you're taking to suggest that it's not just transactional, it's transformational. And that that does move, that transformation moves through people. I'm in a period of uh, transformation internally too. I'm also looking to be challenged. Um, I think as an entrepreneur, especially in the technology space, Um, You can easily be in tunnel vision. And I think it's really important to have other thought leaders and people who are passionate about leaving an impact on the earth sort of challenge your assumptions and 
you know, share new ideas and new approaches um, to the way of working um, and the way of building movements. I love that, you know, and also what's really nice about that is that you, you know, just as we talk about with everything, when you are eating in a place, you get to know the people, the sights, the sounds, the processing, the agriculture, the, the framework of family and business. Um, I wanted to s- jump on some of those experiences because, wow, you know, I think, uh, you, you know, you again have a, a foot in the door and, a, a, you know, a leg on the continent far ahead of what Airbnb's experiences can offer. And yours obviously are much more rich and deep. So we've got yeah. the you know vertical and the lateral exchange going on. What I really am interested in, of course, because this is um, you know a, a food-based race and cultural impact, social impact podcast, is your food experiences. So I have never been to Ghana. Tell me of your Ghanaian food experiences. Which is your favorite? I'm a big foodie myself. Like food is everything to me. Like I'm the the person with the restaurant list for all of my friends and and everyone else who will listen. And so, you know, it uh, when it was time to share, you know, the way one experiences the continent, you know, food was always going to be like a critical part of that conversation. You know, it's it's the taste that sits with you. It is the smells that remind you of where you are. I mean, Ghana essentially smells like palm oil, like, and red, red, like as soon as you touch down and Kaliwele, which is, is, is plantain with like chili spice. Yep. Yes. Kaliwele is uh, almost like, uh, not almost, it is actually like a local in uh, Ivory Coast. So it's really, ripe uh, plantain and just deep fried. So in uh, in Ivory Coast, uh, aloko is something that you've been given as a kid when you come out of school, from school in the afternoon, and, uh, you know, you just want a snack. Uh, very sweet, just deep fried, very soft plantain, very, uh, how can I say, um, caramelized, rather, because of the extra sugar uh, that you find in there. I had a really nice chat with uh, Chef Coco. Ah, yeah. He has a very interesting idea in terms of moving the sort of five-star Pan-African cuisine restaurant around the world. Um, yeah. And, and I really love the, the concepts and ideas that he's interested in and that, you know, sort of coming through who he is as an individual with all these unique frames of reference, it, it stands to reason and makes sense. So Chef Coco um, joined uh, as, a, as a host in Johannesburg, and it's been wonderful to see Pan-African cuisine done at the level that he's doing it. I don't remember the name of the peanut butter sauce dish in Accra that I had. Uh, then I said, okay, yeah, maybe, and people were eating it with just mashed uh, plantain and I said okay in, in my restaurant I will create something with uh, mashed plantain in a gnocchi form Accra love bites plantain gnocchi with peanut sauce and bisa yes 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 we made some gnocchi instead of using potato we use 
uh, mashed uh, plantain. Yeah. Uh, so it's a plantain which has been boiled, uh, then uh, mashed or pounded, uh, add a little bit of flour, and then it's served with a peanut butter sauce. always think like what would it look like if instead of dinner en blanc which is probably one of the largest global you know food events in the world what if it's chef coco's pan-african experience that's popping up all over the world and what and what does that model look like the picture is a one-year-old restaurant before i used to have a French oriented uh, restaurant, French cuisine oriented restaurant. And although I always had like one or two uh, starter from other African countries and one or two uh, main course from other African countries, because I always wanted to, to tell a little bit more about who I am. I, I, I'm more, I feel myself more African than European. So the, the, the goal of uh, Epicure is really to, to travel. Uh, Epicure is not a concept that was created just for Johannesburg. I mean, we, we're now thinking of um, going and establish restaurants like this one in other cities like uh, Kinshasa, Lagos, Edis, Nairobi, and in a couple of years going even over the continent to to really showcase modern uh, African uh, cuisine. Yeah, for sure. Oh, a crawl love bites. Kelewele, all roads leading me back to plantains, you know. But me... I was still aspiring to make that plantain bread. Right, Portia? But uh, I haven't had a banana plantain bread. I'm going to try that as well. Excellent. So let's buy this together and share it. So let's you and I buy one. I'm going to type through. I've got one here. It'll be shipped down to us, it says, within like uh, two days. Okay. Extremely reasonably priced. Ah. And then why don't we talk again and make it together? That's a great idea. illustrates in The Africa Cookbook, along with Sheree and Chef Coco. Aspirational travel in Africa is about much more than setting foot on the soil or feeling one is reconnected with the motherland. It's about having an embodied experience. And as Coco put it, he wants you to experience Epicure and his cuisine as though you've traveled the continent with no need for your passport. And Sheree agreed. So geographically, it means that we take Africa to the world and really tap into the Black experience, 
from Brazil to Baton Rouge to London to Paris and really become a platform where one can connect to um, people of African descent and their stories and their impact on the places they've ended up um, in, in, a, in a very direct way. You know, one of our most popular experiences in Ghana is um, Fulani Dine on a Mat, and it's run by this chef who's originally from Sierra Leone, but is now in Accra. And so for me, like, that is end-to-end impact on someone's business, someone's journey that we, you know, were directly responsible for. And so for me, like, every time someone books on our platform, they are infusing, you know, cash into burgeoning uh, entrepreneurs in growing cities. And I mean, when you look at the data, 400 million people in Africa under 35 are either unemployed or underemployed. So the opportunity to kind of make an income one is not something that everyone is finding and the opportunity to earn that living while doing things you love is especially critical in Africa and in African cities specifically. To be or not to be a banana or a plantain. No matter the color, the sugar is just as sweet and the journey tastes better the further into the diaspora we go. And that's when I knew it was time to cue the bees. You've been listening to Be There, Do That, the podcast featuring everyday stories about food, race, and social impact in Africa. You can find us on all of your favorite pod feeds. Thanks for listening. I'm Yolanda Busby. This podcast has been brought to you by Lita Flora African Botanicals and Sourcing. What can we find for you? With sound design by Melanie Robertson at Origin Audio in Cape Town. This episode has been sponsored by Impact Amplifier, supporters of African dreamers, innovators, risk takers, and humanists who are building the world that we want to live in. Thanks for listening.